and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hey, hey, everyone. I hope you're having an awesome week. Thank you, everyone that's on the resilience course. I don't even have words to say how much I'm loving it and seeing your faces every Wednesday night and the conversations we're having and the messages I'm getting in between. I'm just so happy that we all decided to do this together. So big shout out to all of you that are on the resilience course every Wednesday night. So guys, this week, this week is an episode that truly impacted me. I don't think I stopped thinking about it from the moment we recorded it until this point in time. There's not a day that's gone past that I haven't thought about this conversation that I had with Hannah. Anorexia nervosa is a devastating eating disorder. It casts a dark shadow on the lives of countless individuals affecting both men and women, irrespective of age, race or background. For those who struggle with anorexia every day, becomes a relentless fight against themselves. In today's episode of Challenges That Change Us, we have the privilege of sitting down with Hannah Campbell, a truly extraordinary individual who has faced the relentless grip of anorexia with incredible strength and determination. As she shares her journey, she reveals the profound impact this disorder had on her life, her loved ones, and her sense of self. Hannah's honesty and openness are nothing short of inspirational. The courage she displays in recounting her experience is a beacon of hope for others who may be facing similar struggles. And as I do before every episode, I want to pop a trigger warning on this episode for eating disorders, bullying, and depression. If this is not the right episode for you today, please skip it and we will see you next Monday. And reach out to someone if you're wanting to talk to someone or get some help. That might be a friend, a colleague, a clinician, a helpline. Lifeline is available to talk on 13 11 14. And if you need more resources on eating disorders, please DM me as I'm really, really happy to share that in our community. Whatever we can do to help anyone on this road, we are here beside you, each and every one of you. Let's start this conversation. Welcome, Hannah, to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you so much for coming on this afternoon. Thanks for having me, Ali. It's actually morning over here, so. (laughs) Yes, so for everyone, Hannah's over in the UK and it's late in the afternoon here in Australia. So we've been trying to tee this up now. Hannah and I had had a conversation. We'd actually recorded a podcast interview in the first month that Challenges That Change Us started, right before Hannah went overseas and we lost the audio. So Hannah and I have been trying to G this up for a year and we are here today (laughs) to have a really good conversation, Hannah, about your story. What I love to start with though is so the audience and the listeners can get to know you a little bit is what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal? I've had to think about this question and I think 
best animal to describe me would actually be an octopus. I find an octopus, it's very adaptable to its environment. And despite what it's been given in life, it's actually highly intelligent. And, you know, you can, you can cut a leg off, you can cut a couple of legs off and they'll grow back. So no matter what, what I've sort of been thrown, I've been able to, to grow back and get stronger and become quite resilient. I did not know that about the octopus. So you can, how, do you know how many legs can be cut off before they start to suffer? I think you, you could probably cut them all off and they'd all grow back. I think, yeah, they're pretty cool like that. Like they're really quite funky little animals. We have the resilience course coming up. I might have to go and do some research on the octopus because that might be our little mascot. (laughs) That and starfish as well. You can cut cut the legs of starfish and they'll grow back. Wow. God, it's really incredible, isn't it? Like if you just think about that for a moment, how spectacular it is that something can develop a part of their body that is so important to their everyday functioning. Yep. Yeah, it's like the human brain, really. Oh, 100%. Like, you know, when we think about a stroke or a brain injury and the ability we have for those connections to reform. Yeah, exactly. Just being resilient and adaptable and being able to grow regardless of what's in your your surrounding environment. Hannah, I'm thinking maybe the best place to start with what your experience was would be back at the beginning, you know, what led into everything that happened and how it all unfolded. Back at school, actually, I suppose it, that was quite the catalyst for my story. I had a friend who, who died in a car accident when I was in year 10. And from there, obviously, the death of a friend or someone that you know who's quite young is, is always quite challenging. But it was sort of what ensued after, which was a lot of rumours and, and bullying around what I supposedly said about this individual and I became quite quite isolated. It was a challenging time because I was surrounded by all these people I'd grown up with and people who I thought were my best friend and suddenly, you know, they believed these ridiculous rumours that I had essentially said that my friend wasn't good enough to go to heaven and that that she she essentially deserved to to die, which was quite heavy, you know, for for anyone to say that, let alone myself. You know, I'd I'd grown up with these people. It's awful when you think someone knows you, and then these rumors and people believe them. And I suppose grief does do things to people, but it was quite horrific for a period of time where I was yelled at, I had food thrown at me, I had you know. Oh water, soapy water and stuff thrown over my bags. It got to the point where I stopped going to classes and then I stopped going to school. I was also unofficially suspended for about a week because of the trouble that, that I was causing at school. And then so at the end of that year, I I moved schools to try and get away from it. And then after that, I, I moved towns. So I, I moved to Sydney. I just wanted a, a fresh start, I suppose. You know, Hannah, just listening to that, and I know we're not going into detail around that, but it just highlights how horrific and damaging bullying can be and how it can come out of a rumour. Yeah, and something that, like, just doesn't even make sense. I, like, I don't know, one, that anyone would say that about anyone, let alone, you know, someone that we all knew and that I would say something like that. Like, I'd, yeah, I'd never been one to spread rumours or 
gossip or yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It was one day I got off the bus at school and things were were fine, and then the next day I got off the bus and no one was talking to me and I was being yelled at and taunted and it was quite sudden and very, very, very traumatic at, at that period of time. Mm, and has had a huge impact on you going forwards. Definitely, definitely. From that, I, I definitely threw myself into into my sport because I was doing quite well at, at netball and I sort of just threw all my efforts into that. But I did start doing things like over-exercising and really, really, really pushing myself because I wanted to prove myself that, you know, I was better than what people thought and that I also wanted a way out, a way out of Armadale. A way out of the ugliness. Definitely, definitely. And just the heaviness that that sort of trauma and, you know, that sort of environment, you you do carry it with you to a certain extent, but when you're totally enveloped in it, yeah, it does get too much. And if when you think back to that experience, what did it look like for you behind closed doors? It was very isolating. It was very soul crushing and and you lose all confidence in in anyone and, and trust in anyone. You know, if people try to be your friend, there's nothing to say that they're not just going to get up and leave you or you know, start spreading rumours about you or believing rumours about you the next day. And so you do start to to draw inwards, you know, shut yourself down. I went from being quite extroverted person to being very, very shy and introverted. I felt like I was I was never good enough anymore. And did you know that at the time or is this on reflection now that you can see that's what was happening? I think it's definitely a bit of both. I know definitely at the time I felt myself shutting down and drawing in because I just wanted to to escape it. And I'd imagine hide from it. Definitely hide from it. But I definitely now see, now that I've come out the other side of everything, the effect that it had on me as a person, my personality, the choices that I made, the confidence that I have, my belief in myself. It definitely had a, an extremely negative impact on on those aspects. And it wasn't until a few years later that you started to really notice the impact that it was having on you and your body, right? Yes, yeah. So I moved to Sydney and I started studying and I was playing lots of netball and I was I was really, 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 really pushing myself. You know, I was living just with, with a family friend, which was quite uncomfortable for me because it just was quite an uncomfortable environment and... I was just working really, really, really hard and then I blew out my ACL. So I, I tore my ACL, which stopped my my netball career. It sort of felt like I lost my, my identity. My long-term relationship disintegrated and that became quite negative and, and detrimental. And my original thought was if I can't be the best athlete. I'm just going to be the healthiest and the fittest and the best at everything. So I threw myself into my studies. I threw myself into my my fitness and my eating and it became a form of control because I, I felt like I didn't have a lot of control over, over my surroundings and there was still a lot of hurt. And I think with all the bullying and with the breakdown in my relationship, 
in particular, I wanted to try and show how much people had hurt me and how hard I had to work and how hard I was working. And I wanted to show people that because people move on with their life. Often bullies don't realise the impact that they've had. So often. I think you, that line you just said then I, I think is so true. Yeah, and particularly the breakdown in my relationship was really quite traumatic. That was really the the catalyst for when things really started going downhill. I wasn't just losing a couple of kilos a week. I was losing a kilo a day. I was going to bed at midnight and getting up at 3am and going for you know a two-hour run and then going to university and studying all the way till midnight the next night. And it just became this perpetual cycle. And things went down really, really quickly within a really, really short period of time. And I just wanted to ask, because I know when we spoke about this last time, you explained to me that that it really did start from a place of wanting to be healthy, like the initial place. And I think that's a really important part is that your initial step was about being a better, healthier version. And then it became, it kind of engulfed you and, and, you know, it got a life of its own after that. Definitely. And I noticed signs early on. I was counting my calories. I felt like if I didn't stay under a certain calorie number that I would, I would go into a panic attack. If I couldn't get up and go and exercise in the morning, I'd I just couldn't function for the rest of the day. I found the the people who who were closest to me when I sort of reached out more so to to my partner at the time, it was pushed off as being stupid or you often hear just go and eat. It's it's not that hard, which to someone who doesn't who doesn't have that experience, I suppose eating is is just normal. I was talking to to a colleague the the other day actually and she made the point that with things like alcoholism and drug addiction you you can cut those off and and, and you can go without them and you can still live but you can't not eat and that's where things get really really tricky and as soon as you start not eating you hold on to this this feeling of hunger and and it it becomes comfortable you get comfortable with feeling hungry and it's it becomes a positive reinforcement and so does the weight loss and everything revolves around numbers and it really does consume you and it's all you can think about and it makes you feel good about yourself because you feel like you you deserve it as well you've worked hard for it yeah, exactly. You've you've worked hard for it. And the only way that you'll let yourself eat is if you've worked hard enough, which as we know, when, when you set yourself a, a goalpost, a lot of the time when you're trying to achieve things that are unrealistic, that goalpost keeps on moving and nothing is ever good enough because you're not ever good enough. And it got to the point where I didn't just want to show people how much they'd hurt me. I wanted them to remember my hurt and you just lose this sense of self-preservation. You just don't care anymore. So it does get quite heavy and it does get there really quickly. As soon as you sort of hit, for me, it's 
it definitely was my relationship breakdown that really was the precipice. But leading up to that, I just, if I feel like if I had had the help or support or if something had happened then and there, I could have avoided it instead of being told just go and eat. Or I had a GP who told me that my BMI wasn't low enough to have an eating disorder. So I was like, I'll show you. <laughs> so, you know, all these cues that come back to you and you start losing weight and people say that. You look fabulous. Yeah, exactly. You, yes. What are you doing? What's your secret sauce? Like, look, that shirt looks great on you. Yeah. And it becomes really toxic. And this was even before I wasn't on any social media, things like Instagram and Twitter and YouTube and, and those sorts of things weren't weren't overly prevalent. So I could only imagine what it's like now, you know, with all the these messages. Mine just came from a, a certain number of people. And I'm curious, Anna, in that part, because I, I know we're going to lead into more of the story, but I'm wondering in, in this part what, that we're talking about now, did you get the sense that people weren't noticing? Was it like people didn't see it or were people at this point starting to try and intervene? Some people were. I know I know my parents were, were getting quite concerned, but it was getting towards the end of my, I only had a couple of months left of my undergraduate degree. And the goal was just to push through and, and get that done and get home. I also made the conscious decision that I wanted to finish my education regardless. I, I say to to students, you know, today your your education is not worth your health. You can, you can go back and you can catch up. But I, I suppose I felt like I was so close, I was just going to push through anyway, regardless of what people said. But I was also living away from home, so I didn't have the oversight. All I had left was, you know, the family friend that I was living with and it, it became quite an estranged, uncomfortable relationship. And had someone tried to intervene in that point, you may not have been ready for it as well. Yeah, definitely. So a lovely, lovely woman. I was friends with her and I'd played netball with her daughters and she definitely saw it and she tried to reach out. But I was quite closed off at that point. And even when my mum later on questioned my, like the family friend I was living at at the time and said, you know, why didn't you say something? Because he was a male, he didn't think that anyone, particularly men with women, should bring up and mention weight around around women. You shouldn't, you know, go and say, you know, whether or not you're gaining or losing, it just shouldn't shouldn't be a topic. But I think when the weight loss and the the anxiety and that that compulsion becomes so visible, I do think that there is a point where you need to go and be like, hey, are you okay? And that's what I want to ask about because I know there's stages here of your journey. So at this point when you mentioned that perhaps if someone had given the support or the help had been there at this stage, it could have looked a little bit different. What kind of help and what kind of support, if someone's starting to notice and it's in the early stages, and this might not sound like the early stages, the listeners might be thinking, oh, this is not early stages, but we're just at the beginning of this story. So what could that support or help have looked like at this point? My partner who I was with, when I first brought up the concerns and I would go to bed crying at night because I'd gone, you know, 10 calories over my limit, I think definitely at that point, you know, support and be like, hey, you know, I don't think you're okay. I think you need to go and see someone would have changed things 
you know, and I was also starting to fall into to depression and as often, you know, occurs in tandem with eating disorders for a number of reasons, but also, you know, you begin to become malnourished, which I don't think helped either. And, you know, I was told that as his girlfriend, I can't be depressed. Why would I be depressed? You know, there's people out there who are a lot worse off than me and they're not depressed. So why on earth are you depressed? And so those sorts of messages, I think it, a lot of it for me was was the messages I, I was sent. Just fueled to the fire, right? Like it just added to yeah. an, an already tricky situation. Definitely. And yeah, a lot of those messages. And then I did go and see the GP and say, hey, you know, I'm struggling. I'd like to go and see a psychologist. And he weighed me and said, well, you know, your BMI doesn't meet the criteria for an eating disorder. I did eventually go and see a psychologist and I went and saw a counsellor at the university and those steps were prompted by a friend that I had at, at university and they definitely helped, but I think that was six months too late. Mm, and that's what I was hearing. I was, you know, and that's why I wanted to ask because there was a period that you think the help might have been useful for you and then there was a period that you weren't prepared to listen, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was really a six-month period. Yeah. If things had happened six months earlier, I think things would have been very different. But, yeah, unfortunately, they just... Spiralled. Yeah, they spiralled. And I hit a point and things just spiralled too quickly and nothing was going to pull me out at that point besides proper medical intervention, which I also wasn't wasn't ready for. What did your world look like at this point now? Can you give us a bit of an understanding? Yeah, definitely. So I I had just moved back home and moved back in with, with my parents and I I suppose I finished university and I needed to start earning some money. So I just picked up a full-time job in a in a bank because that that was I mean I could barely manage that. And we went to the GP in town and they referred me obviously to to a psychologist who had some experience with eating disorders and we also discussed the home intervention or home refeeding where you you essentially try to refeed yourself but but it's at home with your parents in a supportive environment but you you don't have the structures around you that you do when you're in hospital so at this point it had been discussed that you were in a situation that you had yeah. anorexia. Very much. I was very, very underweight. I was cold all the time. I still very much tried to to run, but I was, you know, go out and do exercise, but I I just didn't have the energy. I also wasn't letting myself sleep. I'm surprised I didn't have a car accident on a number of occasions. I just am still, like, I'm trying to, I'm back at the run. I'm like, how were you able to physically move? Like, yeah, yeah we had to put special foam on my bed because I was getting bruises and bed sores because I obviously didn't have a lot of padding around my pelvis or, or my back. Were you scared at this point? I hit the point where I was scared on my 22nd birthday. And I remember I, I got up. I'd been in bed for a couple of hours and I got up and I could feel heart murmurs and I started to feel quite sick. And that was quite a, a scary point for me because I I could feel the effects. It was no longer in your control. No, I honestly thought that night that I might have had a heart attack mm. and that was quite scary. 
also, I remember one night, the one of the main defining moments for me before we went to hospital, before I said, yeah, okay, let's, let's try it, was I was trying to help my parents prepare dinner and I just, I wasn't concentrating and I just wasn't, I don't know, I think, I think when you become so malnourished, you end up in this weird state of psychosis and I just spilt dinner all over the floor, like everywhere and my mum became quite hysterical and frustrated and she was sobbing and my my siblings started crying and I just, everything became too much. And yeah, it gets to a point where you just don't have the energy to hold this control over everything. Yeah. And you just sort of give up. Oh, Hannah. And you know, you said that was the moment that you realised you had to go to hospital Was there a moment before that that you realised that you were in trouble? I'd been home for a couple of weeks and I was getting worse. And I suppose because I was surrounded by people who really cared for me, my mum in particular could really see it. So we went to the the GP and I think it was really at that moment in in that doctor's office where sitting there with with my mum, just something about that moment where I really acknowledged that things were getting dangerous. We really need to try and change mm. something. And I think in, in those moments, you know that that you have a problem. You know that suddenly you identify with with this word eating disorder or you identify with the condition or, or the disease. And, you know, yes, I'm I'm anorexic. Yes, I have an eating disorder. And talking with the GP, we then decided we would try home refeeding. What is home refeeding? So it's essentially trying to refeed. So you have regular meals, regular size, and you sit down as a family and everyone eats their meal. So it's not like you can just go and, you know, eat by yourself randomly. There's You all sit down for, for breakfast, you know, you help prepare and, and take your lunch in, in for work and then you sit down at, at the dinner table and everyone eats their dinner and you have to sit there and eat yours as well. What was that like? In some ways, initially it's a relief because you hand over a bit of that control to someone else because you get so exhausted. It's just it's just so exhausting and you just don't have the energy. It, it, it is a relief to hand over that con- a bit of that control to someone else. And initially you start off and, and it's fine, but you very slowly start to feel like you're losing too much control. Mm. And because you do have to eat more than what you're used to and because your, your stomach itself has shrunk so much, you feel really, really full really, really quickly. And that is really quite anxiety provoking. And you start to want to try and regain that control. You start trying to to skip, to hide, to restrict, you know. And I, I remember, you know, eating a, a pot of yogurt for, for dessert and always leaving, you know, a quarter of it and trying to hide it and throw it in the bin. And, and you start, start trying to hide things mm. from the people who, who are looking trying to look out for you and and who really, really care for you. That's one of the hardest things, Hannah, isn't it? It's like 
there's people around you that love you and care for you and are trying to help and having their own reaction and response, but it's so removed from your own. Their experience and your experience is completely different and no one can actually change that. What you're going through in that moment is so isolating and so lonely and so focused. Definitely. You're, you're so focused and you just don't have that, that emotional awareness to empathize with other people who are, who are supporting you and around you and who are going through this journey with you, just having a very different experience of trying to help mm. you. People around you, they, they want it to try and essentially control you and feed you and get you better, but they also don't have that level of control. So I think for those people, it can also be quite fear-provoking. Absolutely. And misunderstood in the sense that you know, what I've often seen over the years is someone's like, it's the size of a tablespoon. Why won't they just eat it? Or it's the size of a quarter of a plate. Why can't they just force themselves to eat it? And I'm not saying that's what happened in your world, but I've, there's some of the language and some of the comments that I've heard over the years because they're looking at the size of it. Yeah. Not the emotion and the story and the experience and the feelings that come with what happens when that food goes in. Definitely. This anxiety and relentless self-hate that comes with eating that food and then having to deal with the thoughts and the feelings and the disgust after you've eaten that food, even if it is a tablespoon, even if it's, you know, even if it is a muesli bar, you know, something really simple, but that kind of symbolizes this sort of self-disgust that you have for yourself. But you can kind of separate yourself from that if you don't eat that, you know. If, if you stay clean, if you stay empty, if you stay in control, you feel a lot better about yourself. So what happened next? It got to the point where I was still losing weight. When you're in such a catatonic state, your body just, it just keeps on losing weight. It's physiologically, it's very difficult to, to overcome and I just wasn't eating enough. Yes, I was eating more, but I was still hiding things from my parents. I still wasn't eating enough. And it was at that point where I was at my lowest weight where we decided to go for a trip and have a look at the hospital. So luckily I had private health insurance. I don't know where I would be now if I didn't have that and have access to to the private hospital and to the psychiatrist who who I went and saw. And I was told that we were just going to go and have a look at the hospital, see what it was like. Because I, I don't think I still wasn't, I knew that I needed it, but I wasn't ready to, I just didn't want to give up that control. The risk, and the risk. Exactly. It's, it's extremely risky and you get comfortable with your routine and with your surroundings with home refeeding, whereas at hospital it's completely out the window. And, and when you said you're at your lowest weight, what was that weight? I think it was about 38 kilos. And you're tall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And prior to that I was quite a, a strong athlete. So I was quite skeletal, I suppose. Looking at photos, I've only seen a couple of photos from that time around Christmas and, and that sort of stuff where we had family photos and 
I was orange because my liver wasn't functioning properly and I had a lot of downy hair. So where your body essentially grows a lot of really, really fine hair to try and help keep you warm. And yeah, I you could see every rib. I remember my first night in hospital looking around in the mirror and you could see my tailbone. Yeah, it was it was it wasn't good. It was like an incredible weight loss. And you were saying that you went to have a look at the hospital. Did you end up going in that day? Yeah, so I was that by choice? Sort of. Kudos to my mum. She did kind of have to trick me. I would have too, just yeah. as a mum, just calling yeah. it. I think I would have yeah. as well because she would have been so scared. Oh, definitely. I don't want to speak for your mum here, but she would have been so scared. And I will be eternally grateful to her for for making that decision because I, I couldn't imagine it would be an easy one to make. So tough. But, yeah, we went around and had a look and she's like, okay, honey, you're, you're staying here, you know. We're going to go back to Armadale and you're going to stay here for a couple of weeks. And I definitely wasn't happy at the time, but I do remember that night having a shower and looking around in the mirror and seeing seeing my tailbone and seeing the the bottom of my pelvis and knowing that that I was in the right place mm. as much as I didn't want to be there. What did those weeks look like for you? Hospital is very... It's very regimented, but it is very uncomfortable. It's quite unusual because you do have a little bit of sense of relief, but it is extremely uncomfortable and anxiety-provoking. So I was having nine meals a day. You go down as as a group because there's a ward of about 20 to 30 patients and you all go down and you have every meal as a group. And there, there are certain tables. So there's table one, table two, table three, and you start on a certain table. And then as your eating improves, you can move up the tables. But you're given a certain period of time to eat within. You can't cut things up into tiny little pieces and eat them piece by piece. It's about retraining not only the eating, but, but the behavior, the behavior of eating. And was that tough? Extremely, extremely. Mm because you feel full all the time. You know, you get up, you go down for breakfast, you come back up and then you have um, an hour of what they call bed rest. So you just, you have to eat and then do nothing. You have to go and sit in a lounge room and stay still for an hour. And then that's usually followed by therapy or groups or sometimes we, you know, you'd have the odd outing or a food challenge that you could go out to. I would get blood tests three times a week. You also had to be weighed three times a week. So Monday, Wednesday and Friday, every morning before breakfast, you'd have to line up in your hospital gown and get weighed. And you do feel, particularly initially in that process, you do feel a bit worthless. You feel kind of like you've been a cow herded around, herded Mm. everywhere and just fed. But I did find that the therapy really useful and also being around people who who I could relate to. I also found it quite validating and also quite quite supportive, you know. There was there was some lovely things where you'd write little notes and we'd all put them in a box and then once or twice a week the nurses would read out all the little notes that people would write about one another, you know, saying, you know, keep on going, you're doing so well, your story really touched me, things like that. 
And there, there was a lot of time to share and to work through things and to be with people who understood what, what you were going through. So it, it also provides quite a safe environment. And it does take that, that decision out of your hands. There is no decision. You just have to go and be uncomfortable. And removing that decision is also a relief. When you say being uncomfortable, it's the choice of which uncomfortable, isn't it? Definitely. One's a known, one's one that you've gotten really familiar with and one's an unknown Mm. that you don't have as much control in. Yeah. Even though you can want to be healthy, you can want to be well, you can want to have change in your world, it doesn't make it any less scary or any easier. Definitely. Definitely. And I definitely think that my first, because I had two stints in hospital and the first admission definitely wasn't long enough. I was there for six weeks and the decision to discharge is largely out of your control, but I know I was ready to to try again, I suppose. You do get to a point where you're ready to try again and all the medical staff, you know, make sure that, that you you hit a certain weight goal and I was discharged and then a couple of months later, I started going back downhill again. I started losing weight. I started, you know, these red flags start popping up. And did something happen to trigger that again for you? Or was it just, did you know that that was happening or did it just kind of fall into it? Like what happened? Yeah. So it is, I think with recovery, the voice and the thoughts in your head, you're told to name it. So, so you know that it's not yourself. It's you know, it's it's not you. It sort of compartmentalizes that that aspect of of yourself and your behaviors. And we called my eating disorder voice ED. So ED was talking again. But you Good name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but upon reflection, and even at the time, I wasn't committed to full recovery. I was committed to a point of Getting everyone off my back recovery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely getting off your back and just existing. Just mm. existing in this this level of control where you can you can exist and you can do what you know, you can do day-to-day things and you can get along, but the control is still very much there. You still have those compulsive behaviors, you still are over exercising, you're still restricting. And it sounds like you still hadn't started to work on the self-worth. Definitely not. So there'd been a behaviour change but not necessarily a shift in the self-worth. Definitely. And I think for me, I mean, because I moved back to Armidale, I moved back. To where it all began. Yeah, I was still very much in, you know, being around my family was great but I was still very much aware of where I was and what had occurred and all the, the memories and the the sense that you get from certain places where where certain events have happened and, and things like that and seeing certain people and knowing just those certain people are around and still wanting to to show my hurt. So the driver, the yeah. driver that initiated all those years ago was still there? Very much, very, very mm. much. And I just, mm. I wasn't ready to let that go. I wasn't ready to let let that hurt go. I essentially bottled it up and it was driving everything. And Hannah, I'm just absolutely blown away by your honesty and transparency here today 
like, you know, I have sat across from many young women who have spoken, but I don't know that I've ever heard anyone speak so honestly and so openly about their experience. It's just incredible. And I just want you to know that. I guess what I'm wondering about is that road to recovery from where we're at now. What were those blocks? What were those foundational blocks that helped that road to recovery? Definitely further psychological and psychiatric support. That was a continual thing up until uh, only two, about two years ago, I stopped seeing the psychologist. So would that be eight years? Nine, nine years. They say it takes on average seven years to recover. And I'd imagine a lot of that is to do with how long it took to develop. Definitely. And I do remember my dad saying to my mum and also to my sister, you know, it took Hannah a a long time to get to this point. So it's going to take her a long time to get out of it. Mm. There is no quick fix and it's definitely not straight up. It's definitely up and down and around and you have good days and bad days. What helped with those slip ups, you know, when you feel like things weren't going the way that they were tracking in the direction you wanted them to track in? What helped on those days? Definitely having someone I could reach out to, which for me, and again, I will always be be grateful to my mum. I've never had a lot of friends. And when you have an eating disorder as well, you shut yourself off and you shut yourself down. So that was really, really important to have someone that I could I could reach out to. I think also having a level of self-compassion is really important. Where instead of hating yourself and driving yourself, I learnt to be a bit more self-compassionate to know that I was having bad days and and that was okay. And the psychiatrist I saw, she said to me once that you always give 100% on any day, but that 100% will change. So you, you always do your best and you always give your best and that is always enough. And another thing for me that also really hit me was that I had to choose between the life that I had always wanted or the eating disorder. You can't you can't have both. That really shocked me, I suppose, when I was working through it with a psychologist and I really realised that I couldn't have both. You know, I couldn't go to university. I couldn't have a, a functioning career. I couldn't go and travel overseas and I, I couldn't have a, a functioning relationship and having my eating disorder. I, yeah. And so I chose to to start to work and to drive towards the life that I wanted. But I think the most important thing that has come into my life has been my husband. I honestly think without him, I still would have existed in in a state of having some level of, of an eating disorder. I really needed someone to come into my life and... Love you. Yeah. And to make me realise that I was amazing and that... What other people think of you doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I thought I was showing people my hurt, but really I just looked sick and people just saw me and they saw that I was sick. They didn't see hurt. I wasn't achieving what I was trying to achieve through through restricting. To get to that point, I had many, many burnout moments, many breakdowns. You know, I almost had another couple of car accidents because I just, because I was sleeping again and because you're refeeding, you sleep a lot. I was tired all the time. I slept through alarms. I didn't make it to work on time, you know, and then you'd go and you'd get so hungry 
and throughout all the years, I was just so exhausted. I'd just start eating and I'd eat and eat and eat and eat and eat until I was so full and then I'd feel disgusting. And then, you know, you, you try and go for a run, but you can't run because you're so tired because your body's trying to heal itself. And you just realize that it's just not working and you just need to stop and look after yourself and just need to, it's okay to check out and it's okay to say, hey, I'm not okay. You know, I'm going to spend the next week sleeping. <laughs> but that's a very different conversation you're having with yourself than you've had. Definitely. There's also a lot more awareness of what you're doing and why you're doing and making a conscious effort to go against your thoughts. There's a lot of self-talk. You know, I've read a couple of of books written by people who have suffered eating disorders and, you know, their defining moments. Those books might be worthwhile. I might pop them in the show notes if that's okay. Yeah, definitely. When you mentioned about your husband, I was thinking... You know, you did have people around you that loved you, like your family, but the difference I'd imagine was that he came knocking, you know. He was like, I love you as you are now. Definitely. And he came to me when I was still quite underweight and I was Mm. still really, really struggling. And he has been through a lot of struggle and adversity and, and mental health issues and he just wouldn't take no for an answer. And I think for me as well, since I had broken up with my partner, you know, all those years ago, I had defined myself by being in that relationship. I had defined myself with with my netball. I had lost my netball. I was no longer in that relationship. And I definitely a lot of my self-worth was built into that relationship. And being with that person was what gave me worth. So suddenly I wasn't with that person and I had this this huge gaping hole and I suppose I wanted to to numb it by by not eating. Thinking back about how that felt, it's just this it's just this hollowness that I I used to wake up at night screaming and crying and just trying to I don't know yell through it or get it up and out. But as soon as I met him, that hole was it started to be be filled, I suppose, and and I started to heal a lot more. And we're coming to the end of our conversation today. One of the things that's really stayed with me throughout this whole conversation is that push-pull dynamic, even coming out from being a mum myself and being a wife and wondering about if someone in my inner circle was going through it. Sounds like, and please tell me if this isn't how it is, but it sounds like there was a period where there was an opportunity for help and then there was a period that was like, no, I don't want it, go away, push, push, push. And then there was a period that was like, thank God you guys are still here because I need you. I don't know. I don't know if that's how it was, but that's kind of what I heard. And I guess I just wanted to open up a bit of a conversation around the dynamic of the when people are trying to help at a time when you don't want help. Mm. It is difficult when you don't want help and particularly when you're hiding things and it's it's hard and it hurts those people around you and you don't realise that it's hurting them and you don't realise that they're struggling too. But sometimes I think you have to make the sacrifice to push, you know, even if it's going to break down your relationship, even if it's going to make your relationship with that person difficult or if it's uncomfortable I think you you need to push and you need to make the hard decision when they can't make it or won't make it for themselves. You're talking about the support person needs to be able to break yes. down those barriers. Yeah. Yeah. And 
sometimes, you know, and, and you do see it in mental health when there is no longer a choice where you do have to go and commit people. And I think I got very close to that point and it can make that relationship between, you know, the person who's who's trying to put you into therapy or, or get you help can really destroy that relationship in that moment for the short term. But long term, when the person gets out of it, when you do recover and you start recovering, you do appreciate it. But it is about making the hard decisions. It is hard and it does hurt. But keep going and keep trying if anyone's listening. Exactly, exactly, because I would not be here without people making the hard decisions for me when I wasn't ready to make them for myself. I 100% know that. And even when, you know, back at school when I was playing netball and I had all these all these dreams of being an athlete, I never would have put myself where I am now and in the relationship that I am now and Yes, things are still hard from time to time. It has transformed my life, the help that I received along the way. So, yeah. And would it be fair to say that you feel contentment? Like obviously you're not going to feel it every day. No one does. Anyone out there that's listening that thinks you're striving to have contentment every day, (laughs) hate to burst your bubble, it doesn't happen. But would you say, Hannah, that for you, like the hope, I guess that's the part that I'm thinking about now, the hope for people that are listening to this thinking, is it possible? Does it get better? Yes. Again, they say seven years to recovery, but it is a continual process, but you do get through it, but it's not months, it's years, Mm. but there is hope. Years and tears, I'd imagine. Yeah, years and tears, but you get out the end and it is worth it. It it is worth the, the heartache. And not many people can stand where you're standing right now and say that like you're using the language like getting through it. Mm. Not many people that are standing there feeling like they can say that, put their hand on their heart and say that because it can be a lifelong condition. It can and, and you know, I'm still on medication. It just helps give me a bit of a safety net. I have a very supportive relationship, a very, very supportive relationship. My husband is very aware of any red flags or, you know, what to look for if I start going downhill. I think that's really important to have that conversation when you do start going through recovery and, you do start picking up, you know, what to look for, what are triggers when you start going downhill and what you need to do to, to stop that fall. And it's about having you know, these strategies in place. It's almost creating a safety plan when you're well as opposed to creating a safety plan when you're not feeling so well. Definitely, definitely. When you're not well, you're, you're not going to feel like doing the things that, that you you said that you would to help yourself when you're well, but because they're there and you've made that commitment and you've made the people around you aware of that, you have that support and you have that safety net. That's incredibly important, but it, it is going to be there for, for the rest of your life. At least for, for me, it, it will be, but I've got so many other things in my life that help me look forward and, and not look back. And I've found a purpose and that's more important than having an eating disorder. So I've definitely made my choice. I'm so proud of you. Thanks, Sally. (laughs) Before we finish up, do you have a message for the bullies, the community that went with the rumour and blew it out of the water? Is there something you want to say? I suppose it's very mixed. 
funnily enough, just before I moved to, to England, I had to go to the bank and someone who served me was actually one of those bullies back at school. And she asked me what I was doing, saw that I was married and I told her that I was moving to the UK and, you know, I was going to be a lecturer at the University of Leeds. I had a PhD and she she was like, wow, that's amazing. And to hear that from her, to know that I was doing something beyond even what I could have even thought of, you know, all those years ago was was enough for me. In that moment, I was like, you know what? I don't care. You guys don't matter anymore. School is only, it's such a short part of your life. The bullying, bullying can really change someone's life. You can really, really alter the course of someone's life through a little rumour or through playing a little prank, whatever you get out of it the impact that you're having on that other person is so much more and you don't know which way it's going to go. And I suppose for me it's more about sending a message to anyone who's doing the bullying now. You just don't know how it's going to to influence someone. So don't do it. <laughs> Please don't do it. But I was also thinking the power of that message is also around don't spread rumours. Be aware of the words that we say and the power they can have and the impact that they can have on someone else. Yeah, exactly. It's There's so much power in words and in language. You know, looking back, you remember the negative things and particularly words and, and phrases and moments, you just internalise them and you can carry them with you for, for the rest of your life. It's something so simple can have such a, a huge impact. And I guess we heard from you today that there are ways that you don't have to carry that load anymore. You know, with the right help and the right support, you don't have to carry those words with you for the rest of your life. These words aren't you Mm. and you no longer have to hold them. Let's take them from you. Let's lift them up and out. Definitely. Definitely. Oh, Hannah, thank you so much. I do have to finish with our last question, which is who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh? My my husband. The highlight of the show. He is the funniest person and he's brought out a humour in me that I didn't even know I had, so I often make myself laugh, you know, and we can sit there for hours just just joking around and, and almost, you know, just being kids again. And whenever I get home from work, seeing him just brings so much joy, like so much joy. He's a superstar. I love him. I haven't met him and I love him. (laughs) (laughs) He reminds me of my husband. I speak so fondly of Flinny like that as well. It's incredible when someone has has shown up for you at a time when you're at your worst and loved you wholeheartedly. Like I really resonate with that because my husband was there for those moments with me as well. And they'll never know. They'll never know what they've unlocked and the joy that they've bought and the life that they've created. Definitely. I don't think they can ever truly know, but they're legends. They are legends. They are absolute, incredible, amazing human beings. Thank you, Hannah. My pleasure. So much for sharing your story so honestly. So important. You know, today with all the the social media as well, all the things that particularly, I mean, not only young women, but young women in particular having to deal with in terms of, you know, weight loss and image. And, you know, you don't have to be 
skinny to have an eating disorder. That's so important. There's so many people out there who who need to hear that there's hope and need to know how how to help someone as well. It's misunderstood and it's difficult to understand and it is it is hard to to help someone in the way that they need it when they they often don't want it. I can say that you've absolutely bridged that gap for me today in that misunderstanding. You know, I really felt every step of your story today, I felt like it opened up and and helped me have some insight into what it was like for you at that time. So thank you. That's okay. My pleasure. Oh, that was a that was a big episode. I know that each of us are impacted differently by listening to different episodes, and this one truly stayed with me as I mentioned in the introduction. I was reflecting on on why that might have been, and I, I think it's because I've sat across from people in a counselling room for many, many years, and I don't know that I've personally ever heard anyone describe their journey of an eating disorder in the way that Hannah described it, that we were there with her every single step of the way. Like her ability to describe what she went through, how she navigated it, what the experience was like, what was happening inside her head, what was happening in her body was just incredible. If you know someone, I know just about every single one of us will know someone that could benefit from listening to this episode. Maybe it's a sister, a cousin, a mom, a brother, a husband, whoever it is in your world, I would love to invite you to share this because the more we open up these conversations, the more we can help our loved ones, the more we can support people in our world that we care about, that are going through a tough time, that that we may not may not have the words for or may not know how to help or may not have heard someone share their story like Hannah did today. So, yep, definitely invite you all to share this. Hannah and I had a good discussion about it and she would love you to share it as well. Otherwise, I I hope you all have a fabulous week and we will see you next Monday morning for our next episode. I'm going to start giving you a bit of insight into who's coming up next, but not this week. You're going to have to tune in. All right, guys, have a fab week and I will see you then. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.